From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. After Paraguay's announced their Twitter just tech Twitter just went crazy. So you saw the Stripe brothers tweeting, "Well, Indians are so amazing. They're this, this is why immigration is amazing." Elon Musk was tweeting like, "Yes, like the US needs Indians." And I think that after all of these repeated forays, our thesis at the Juggernaut is you you see the mainstreaming of South Asian people and South Asian culture into the society. I think before we were we are a very tiny population in the US still. There's only 6 million of us, but we wield really high spending power we're very much more visible now than we were before from Kamala Harris as the first black and indian woman at the second to you know top position in politics to you know Mindy Kaling's cultural projects from never have i ever to you know the sex lives of college girls to you know hit shows breakout hit shows that everybody watched like indian matchmaking i think it's just part of this larger trend where i think these visible people are making people realize wait a second there's this entire community out there that doesn't compute in an america that views things as you know just black and white and they're like wow well, now we have to you know account for this what is happening here a close friend of dorsey's agrawal began his career at the company as an engineer in a statement monday dorsey praised agrawal saying quote my trust in parag as twitter's ceo is deep his work over the past 10 years has been transformational i'm deeply grateful for his skill heart and soul it's his time to lead At 37, Bombay boy Parag Agarwal becomes the youngest CEO in the S&P 500. He joins the growing ranks of India-born CEOs dominating the Silicon Valley. Is it that Indians are having a moment in American corporate life or are we finally seeing the fruition of the work done by generations of Indian immigrants paving the way for a slate of C-suite executives? Snigdha Sur is the young CEO and founder of the Juggernaut, a website and newsletter dedicated to South Asian news, and she has been closely watching the rise of the Indian-born stars of the American corporate world. Meenal, if you take the thirty thousand foot view, when we look at the data, Indian Americans are some of the most educated groups in the U.S. They also have the highest median income in the country. they have about 460 billion dollars of spending power. So when you think about who is often tapped to be in the C-suite for Fortune 500 companies, it makes sense that it's often somebody who has gotten a college degree but also has a graduate degree, which many of these Indian origin CEOs have. The other interesting trend is with Parag as well. We actually wrote about him uh, as the next kind of sector of people to watch out for many uh-huh. of these CEOs mm-hmm. in our article right after IBM CEO was announced many of these CEOs start out in the C suite in another role so when you look at Indra Nooyi she was the CFO then she was the COO and then she became CEO similarly Parag was the CTO and has now stepped into the CEO position and so when you look at it that way you can not only examine the current slate of people but then you can also see hey who's going to be next by looking at the c suite in 2001 my colleague chidanand rajkhatta who writes for the paper from washington had written a far sighted book called the horse that flew it was about the growth of india's tech talent and how they have gone on to become global stars his new book is on yet another woman who is half indian kamala harris 
Vice President of the United States. Chidanand bookends the two decades in which Indian Americans have become an increasingly visible and powerful community in the US. Their rise, he says, is a movement and not a moment in contemporary America. Yeah, I don't think it's a moment. It's, uh, if anything, it's a movement uh, because this has been happening. It's a process uh, for several years and it's acquired uh, you know, a, a very high profile now. Um, we have to remember that this is not just technology, you know, they are present in so many fields, you know, healthcare, medicine. I can give you examples, you know, which are relatively unknown. For instance, hmm. uh, for the longest time before he uh, actually retired a, a few years ago, Quest Diagnostics, which is a huge uh, medical diagnostics uh, company, uh, had an Indian uh, CEO, Surya Mohapatra was from uh, Odisha. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so there have been companies, you know, uh, beyond technology. Um, Indra Nui of uh, PepsiCo, of course, is the most famous example, um, or MasterCard, or Banga. So, yeah, this has been happening, uh, and many names are relatively unknown. They fly below the radar. They don't attract headlines. Yeah. Uh, but this is, uh, this is a process. This is a movement, and uh, it's going to last uh, into the future. In early 2000, I think you wrote your book, the horse that flew, how India's silicon gurus spread their wings. The kind of names that we see are today are kind of product of, of the environment in India. And then they've, of course, gone to the US and done really well for themselves. Talk a little bit about that tipping point and how that may have created this environment for all these, you know, the next generation, so to speak. Sabir Bhatia and his uh, fr uh, friend and colleague, a guy named uh, Jack Smith, they uh, co-founded uh, Hotmail. It, it grew very rapidly. And Microsoft bought it for, at that time, $400 million, which was a lot of money <laughs> those days. It still is. But uh, that was what actually triggered the book. And by 1999, it became very obvious to me that there were many, many Indians in the technology company. And the more I looked into it, I found actually there were old legacy companies. There was a company I found called uh, Tandon Computers, which actually went back to the 70s. A guy named uh, uh, Jaggi Tandon had founded the company. Hmm. Uh, so by, by the late 90s, it was obvious that Indians uh, were you know, founding companies, uh, they were heading companies, uh, buying, selling, uh, sorry, selling companies. Uh, and then, of course, there was the Y2K problem, which actually brought everything into focus. But going back, you know, the origins, uh, you know, I was fortunate that I actually uh, uh, was born, grew up and studied in Bangalore. And Bangalore was actually pretty much the ground zero of Indian uh, IT industry. Absolutely. Uh, it all began in the 70s. And my book traces that hmm. uh, because Bangalore had a number of these public sector companies. And it also had the Indian Institute of Technology, which was an important crucible, uh, you know, long before IITs, uh, IASC, which was, you know, um, founded uh, in Bangalore, gave the sort of uh, basic raw material in terms of, uh, you know, people and talent. In the mid-80s, Bangalore became, you know, uh, sort of the ground zero. And uh, the first technology, uh, Western technology company set up offices in Bangalore. Uh, in fact, in a building called Sona Towers. Mm. And um, my, my recollection, and I, I relate all this in the book, there were two or three companies, uh, American companies. Uh, one was Hewlett Packard. Uh, the Nortel Networks, which was a Canadian uh, company, and Texas Instruments. These were the first three companies which actually came in. And the interesting part is 
the 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 people who uh, from this company who were tasked with setting up the indian operation were all people of indian origin so that was the really the birth and by the late 80s you know this began to you know gather momentum it also coincided with you know iits getting uh, a lot of uh, you know press and a lot of uh, you know attention uh, and producing really sparkling students who then you know would go out Mm. Uh, into the world and uh, here in the us it uh, uh, it coincided with uh, the h1b work visa uh, you know which attracted a lot of indian uh, sort of uh, uh, executive talent i came to the us in 94 and at that time my recollection is about 30000 indian students uh, were coming uh, were in the us uh, and that began to rise very rapidly and today we have 200000 indian students at any given time Uh, in the US mm. and it's a huge pool mm. and remember it's also the people ask i mean how come indians do so well in the us and this thing when i i always remind them that uh, you we have to remember that it's we send the best and brightest for the most part to the us so it's the it's the elite uh, indian students i don't know if you've seen that meme that's been doing the round uh, since the last couple of days padega india tabhi to badega america uh, mm-hmm. and of course there is a disproportionately large number of iitians and also people from iims who are now heading these fortune 500 companies how would you read the influence of the iitians in the american corporate world yes uh, there is they are they are a very elite club they are clubby and their influence is enormous Hmm. um you know in fact going uh, as far back as uh, probably early 2000s when they began to have their annual uh, uh, you know uh, gathering uh, i remember attending one which had 2000 uh, you know iitians in uh, all in the us attending and i think um, my recollection is the chief uh, guest uh, was uh, bill gates uh, and they're incredibly uh, you know well networked i want to emphasize one thing it's not just iitians i mean iitians get all the glory and headlines but you know it's beyond iitians every major uh, indian engineering and medical and even regular colleges now have alumni uh, associations in the us mm. you know it could be uh, ms university in baroda which has a number of this thing it could be um, you know my own college or bangalore university mm. uh, you know and many of these top executives are not necessarily iitians i mean satya nadella is from what we you know used to joke uh, about as india's mit I mean sabir bhatia was actually is actually from bitspilani which also has number of you know brilliant uh, you know alum, alumni so yeah it's it's not just iit it's uh, now uh, you know uh, the indian education system itself is a force to reckon with and you know the amazing part is over the years i've also found that the us universities covet indian students you know they really covered them how is the american press reading the rise of parag agarwal i mean it's quite a remarkable he's 37 ushakti nagar boy from bombay and uh, only by the virtue of the the fact of the platform i mean right. he becomes one of the most powerful people in america actually in the early hours as soon as uh, uh, the news broke that dorsey was stepping down one of the candidates i heard who, you know who would be in the reckoning was another indian american by the way uh, her name is vijaya gadde mm-hmm. uh, she is the head of the uh, legal uh, you know uh, team of uh, this thing and considered very powerful in twitter and also fam- familiar in india she visited india with jack dorsey mm. 
a couple of years ago, 2018, I think. So yeah, um, Raga Agrawal is, is a big surprise candidate and uh, we'll see how it goes. Interesting thing is uh, all Indians, uh, uh, most Indians who have taken over the CEO job in recent years in America have done brilliantly. Uh, yeah. And of course, yeah. uh, 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 Satya Nadella is the most uh, you know prominent example. When he uh, took over as CEO, uh, in, I, I don't think anybody expected Microsoft to grow at such as uh, pace. It's just incredible that it's year on year, it's grown, what, 35% or something, and it become a trillion dollar company in no time. And the interesting thing also is most of the Indians uh, or people of Indian origin or Indian Americans, whatever you prefer to call them, uh, they've all replaced uh, white CEOs. Yes. That yes. is, which, uh, you know, is very striking. Uh, so there's an element of trust. There's now, uh, this is brand. The outsized role of the Indian Institute of Technologies is one of the key factors in the growth of the Indian-born emigre, leading to what Snigdha Sur calls a pattern recognition among those hiring for talent in the U.S. And at the same time, she cautions that when it comes to Indian women, even if they have the same education as the men, the big C-suite job continues to be somewhat elusive. Is the IIT club then just another big boys club? You know, the IIT effect is very similar to the Ivy League effect, right? Where you see so many people from the same schools represented or overrepresented in so many Fortune 500 companies. And part of it is because, you know, as people hire, if you're a hiring manager, you start developing pattern recognition. You're saying, oh, whenever we've hired an IIT grad to be leading our engineering division, it's gone really, really well. And of course, there's definitely the community and the tribal aspect of it where, you know, of course, it's easier to be referred to a job because you know another IIT alum and there are many of them. That also helps having a ton of alums, right, and alumni. The Ivy League is not just the Ivy League because it's elite, right? It's also the Ivy League that has a long history of alumni. So it's much more likely for you to bump into one of them. If you are the hiring manager and you're choosing between people with certain pedigrees and you've seen certain pedigrees work, why not keep hiring that pedigree? I think what South Asian Americans are seeing in general is we are frustrated in America when it comes to gender balance. We still haven't had a female president. We've had the first female vice president in history. And when you look at the numbers, many women are so underrepresented in the U.S. CEO ranks when it comes to Fortune 500 companies. And it also applies to South Asian women when we go to, you know, uh, uh, intersectionality. We are like, where are the South Asian women? We know they're as educated as the men. Let's go see them rise to the top as well. So that's one thing to watch out for as well, which is, hey, are we going to see more women at the top? So that's um, very interesting because I, I was just recently talking to Indira Nui and she she spoke in particular about not just as an immigrant, but also as a woman, how difficult it was for her to, to become the CEO of Pepsi. So uh, you, you spoke about the C-suite earlier. Do you see uh, South Asian women uh, kind of uh, making their way up the ranks? Sometimes, and there's a known trend of this, women are given the top position when things are difficult. It's as if they want us to see, want to see us fail. You've seen this with Marissa Mayer, even when Indra Nui inherited Pepsi, she had to really shift the company in a lot of ways. She had yes. to think about how do we 
think about our entire portfolio. Do we divest? Do we invest? Do we go into healthier snacks? She had to think about a lot when she inherited the portfolio and they kind of put her through the ringer. They made her through, go through so many other C-suite positions before they gave her the top job going back to Indra Nui. Similarly, when you look at Gap, the person who's inherited Gap right now, it hasn't, it hasn't been doing well. So she faces a lot more challenges than, than even a typical you know, CEO. So what I would say here is, yes, you de- do see some you know, rising women in the C-suite position. We saw Anjali Sood, the CEO of Vimeo, go you know, take the company public. And the thing to remember is, are they being put in positions of strength or positions of, not weakness, but positions of challenge? And you're seeing some good signs from the CFO of Stripe and, and more. But at the end of the day, there's also research to believe that many women, as they climb up the ranks, feel discouraged. They are told that, oh, like, why are you being ambitious? Why do you want to go rise up the ranks? So many of them end up actually switching jobs or or becoming entrepreneurs. There's a lot lot of talk about the Asian American glass ceiling. It seems like there's a special exception made for Indian origin men. And I think that that's something to really remember that gender does play into this when it comes to, um, uh, you know, not just hiring, but also promotion. And I think that's something to be wary of. You spoke about this uh, this exception that's made for 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 the Indian male, even in America. The Chinese, for instance, come from a similar culture of of uh, hard work and education, prioritizing education. What is it that makes the the sort of the 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 Indian man woman um, uh, the sort of uh, such a good fit for American companies? The facility with English language has been super prized and really high. The second thing is America for a long time, when you look at the relationship it had with India, has long been in services, whether it's outsourcing, whether it's insourcing, whether it's offshoring. So there's already an affiliation with, hey, we rely on these folks for you know, outsourcing engineering talent or outsourcing recruiting functions and services specifically, whereas America's relationship with China historically has been in manufacturing. So when you look at some of those kind of macro trends, it's not necessarily that Indians are a better fit for America. It's more that historically that relationship has been more defined by what America sees as a good fit for America. And I think the other thing that you saw happening is, you know, Indians specifically and also Asians overall have been historically the most discriminated against immigration group. It was only the 1965 Heart Seller Act that said, okay, now you can all come without a quota, but you have to be highly skilled. Now, what you started seeing happening is that many, many Indian Indians, you know, kind of fanned out not just in the corporate world, but they also went to Silicon Valley. And so you see really huge success stories from the Valley as well in tech companies, you know, from the Vinod Kosos of the world and things like that. Going back to pattern recognition, many of these big Fortune 500 companies today are tech companies. So you also see that natural kind of um, correlation where you know, India is associated with services. Many of them come to America on highly educated degrees. Many of them come with tech backgrounds or the IITs of the world. They grow to graduate schools based in tech programs. And now some of the most valuable companies in the U.S., headquartered in the U.S., are tech companies. So you kind of see all of those things come together um, very beautifully in, 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 in the reason for why that is happening. In America, you have this wonderful confluence between Indians uh, being high achievers and um, the American uh, system of meritocracy, if you will. And what do I mean by that? 
you know, from the time that Indians started arriving on American shores in the 1970s in greater numbers, um, you had Indians being associated with with professions such as doctors, uh, engineers, professors, accountants. Um, they really came to be viewed as a model minority. And even today, you know, when you look at, um, you know, um, all Asians and you look at Indian household incomes, Indian household incomes eclipse all Asian groups by a considerable amount, you know. All Asians are at about 85,000. Indians are about 119,000 median annual household income. Um, and Indian levels of educational attainment are much higher than other Asian groups. So I think it's been a pattern. Um, what matters are your talents, your efforts, your achievement, and not your wealth and not your social standing as you see in places like England and Europe. That's journalist Anita Raghwan, who has worked for the Wall Street Journal and who has written a compelling book on the rise and downfall of another Indian star in American life, Rajat Gupta, the former McKinsey MD. Anita's book is called The Billionaire's Apprentice, The Rise of the Indian American Elite and the Fall of the Galleon Hedge Fund. While today we acknowledge and celebrate the success of young tech talent from India, Anita offers a contrast between two generations of Indian emigres, their different styles of working, and where the two might just need to converge. You write about the sort of the darker side of the of the Indian American elite. Mm-hmm. Were there any surprises when you were reporting on that story of the downfall of of the Galleon Fund and Rajat Gupta and so many other Indians? I think the biggest surprise in telling that story for me was was the story of Rajat Gupta because I was at the Wall Street Journal in 1994 when Gupta was elevated to being the managing director of McKinsey and it's hard to think back to that time but I remember seeing that press release you know cross the wires and feeling a sense of pride um in my heart because uh my father had come earlier than uh, gupta to the states but in a way gupta's elevation was a sum of the achievements of my my parents and it was uh you know just overwhelming to see it and then to you know um you know move forward you know uh 15 years later and find that that this man who had enough wealth was very well respected on the world stage he was one of the few indian ceos who went to white house dinners hosted by presidents on both sides of the aisles he went to davos he was good friends with bill gates to see someone who had everything going for him uh squander his reputation and befriend someone like raj rajaratnam to me was the greatest surprise of the story and i suspect it it was a shock even to his own family he of course led a very sort of a a, a very uh, publicly flamboyant life the tech ceos uh, they are they more low profile do they strike you as a slightly different breed well a number of the current ceos are in the in the tech business and 
you know, uh, California has always been much more relaxed than New York. And I think even the way Jack Dorsey put out the announcement about uh, Agrawal's elevation tells you that, you know, it was sort of, I think it was very casual. Don't know if you've seen this, but I just resigned. Uh, so by, by the nature of the companies they lead, by the nature of the businesses that they're involved in, yes, I think, you know, this current crop of CEOs um, are not as, um, you know, enthralled with the trappings of life, if you will. You know, Rajat Gupta was a man who was very much um, wanting to be uh in the in in the scene, you know, whether it was Davos, the White House, that was all very important to him. And I suspect it's less important to um, the people who run the tech companies. I mean, when you look at Parag Agrawal, what you see is a techie. Whereas when you look at Rajat Gupta, you see the photos of Rajat Gupta, you see a very polished man who's curated his um, public persona for decades, and it's it's just you know night and day in my my mind. Mm, mm. Perhaps the kind of power that the tech billionaires, the tech CEOs um, wield, is very real, and 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 I think maybe they, um, I mean Parag Agarwal, by the virtue of being the CEO of Twitter, by the virtue of the platform he leads, is is now one of the most powerful people in the world in a, in a sense. So, so the kind of power that he is also very, he doesn't need to schmooze that much, perhaps. That's right. That's right. There's the power of the platform. And the other element of power is, of course, the money, <laughs> which is such a salient uh, characteristic of life in the U.S. And I think one of the things that gnawed at Rajat Gupta near the end of, the, near the end of his career was that there were individuals like Raj Rajaratnam, a somewhat, you know, boorish hedge fund manager who uh, had managed to amass, you know, much more in wealth than he, the polished Gupta had. And uh, someone like Parag Agrawal uh, will over time, you know, earn a lot of money being the, being the CEO of Twitter. And by virtue of that, perhaps, you know, can can buy his way into any social event that he wants to go to and doesn't need, you know, the trappings of, of what society has to offer. So it's a generational thing, perhaps. Do you get a sense, Anita, that, that they are also very, uh, very politically inclined? The, 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 the kind of, they are almost like a, a very powerful sort of uh, pressure group in the US, the, the, the Indian origin tech billionaires? I don't actually. And I think that's the interesting question with Parag Agrawal, because here's an individual who was the chief technology officer of the company and clearly was very good at what he did. But now he, you know, takes on the mantle of the entire company and its, its profile in Washington. And there's a lot of concern right now, as I'm sure you know, about tech companies, their power, uh, their, um, you know, uh, the role they play in fostering division in society, the potential of uh, companies like Twitter to censor free speech. And, you know, the real question in my mind is whether Agrawal is the man for the moment, because in the coming years, 
social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are going to face a thicket of thorny issues uh, in Washington. And is someone like Agarwal, a man who really grew up immersed in tech, you know, uh, who was born in India, spent most of his life, the greater proportion of his life in India, whether he's going to be able to navigate and help the company negotiate some of these uh, prickly challenges. Today's episode is produced by Arun George and Sunai Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.